Have you ever been around that person that just always seems to be lucky all the time? You know, they're always in the right place at the right time. Maybe they got a job in a certain industry. They were kind of unassuming. It was, maybe they weren't the smartest person in the world. But then the, the, their career just explodes because they were in the right place at the right time. Or, or maybe you've, you've known somebody that... Uh, uh, you know, you, you, you observed uh, kind of the ugly guy that gets the beautiful girl. And you're like, how did, how did that happen? You know, how's that even possible? Well, right place at the right time. Uh, I used to play ball with some guys like that. You know, you, the guy's not that big. He's not that fast, not that strong. But when the shot goes up, there's five huge, huge guys under the basket. But the rebound ends up in his hands and he makes some unforeseen shot. And you're like, he's so lucky. You look around and you can, you can feel that way, can't you? I mean, it's true in business. It's true in relationships. It's true in so many other, other areas of life. It's easy to feel like people are just lucky. When you read the book of Esther in the Old Testament, it's easy to look at that story through that same vantage point. Esther was just lucky. If you weren't with us last week, Esther was... Uh, a young teenage girl, she was about 14, 15 years old, she was Jewish, and she's living in a faraway land, this is during the exile, um, the Jewish people had been carted off to uh, Iran, and somehow she ends up becoming the queen of the Medo-Persian Empire, <laughs> you're like, right person, right place, at the right time. But when you dig beneath the surface and when you really begin to examine the story of Esther, you see that God was providentially orchestrating all of the situations and all of the scenarios for his purpose. We've been in a series called Storyline because God has a storyline for your life. God has written a beautiful story. And when you get in touch with that story, it helps you discover your purpose, the thing that God has designed you to accomplish. Uh, there's nothing greater than living within the purposes of God, feeling that sense of, man, God's using me. God's doing what he wants me to do. And uh, the book of Esther is an interesting book because God is not mentioned by name anywhere in the 10 chapters and yet God is seen everywhere. God is behind the scenes. He has a storyline for Esther. And this young teenage girl who has everything stacked against her is going to be the one who saves the Jewish race. It's really amazing. I want you to open your Bibles today to the third chapter of the book of Esther. I'm going to take you through a bunch of scripture today. We're going to be introduced to a guy by the name of Haman. Everybody say Haman. Haman is the bad guy. Haman is the, the arch nemesis of the Jewish people. Uh, one day Haman gets his feelings hurt. He gets promoted. He becomes the right hand man of the king. And everybody bows down to him except one guy. His name's Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai says, you know what, I'm Jewish. We don't bow down to anybody except the living God. I won't bow down. Haman gets upset. He gets angry. He stews on it for five years. And he decides, I have the solution. In fact, I have the final solution. 
we're going to wipe out all of the Jewish people in the entire Medo-Persian Empire. We're just going to kill all of them. It's kind of crazy. It's a pretty sinister dude, right? I mean, this is Darth Vader. This is Hannibal Lectern. What's the bad guy in Harry Potter? Lord, what's his name? Yeah, that guy. He's bad, isn't he? He's real bad. The Joker? The Joker's bad. That's Haman. Now, you got to be a pretty sick person to just decide, you know, we're just going to wipe out a whole, a whole race of people. But isn't it interesting that when bitterness gets in our heart, that it, it takes us down the path of destruction. Uh, when we have unforgiveness, when we have unresolved conflict, when that, that bitterness begins to seep into our heart, it begins to take us to dark places that we never thought were imaginable. And, and after five years of just stewing on it, this, this anger turns to bitterness and bitterness to hostility and hostility to, to, to uh, violence and violence to insanity. And, and you just see this downward progression. Haman actually goes to the king and convinces him that the next step is to wipe out the Jewish people. And he, he lies, he, he kind of sensationalizes everything in chapter 3. He says the Jewish people won't respect your laws. That's not true. But the king kind of buys into it and he grants permission for Haman to take out uh, this, this nasty, sinister plot to kill all of the Jews. But I want us to look today at, at something that I think is so profound. I've titled the message, Right Person, Right Place, Right Time. Because uh, this is the formula that God uses to accomplish great things. This is the, this is the formula that God uses for, 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 for great impact, for, for great purpose. And I want to unpack each one of these thoughts as we look at the following chapters of Esther. The first is the right person. The right person. Am I God's man or woman? Am I God's person? Am I God's person? Now look, look at this in chapter 3, verse 2. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. He says, this violates the Ten Commandments. I'm a Jew. I'm not going to violate my convictions. And all the people in the court are like, hey, man, well, Mordecai, why are you not bowing down to Haman? You know, oh, you're Jewish. And then word gets back to, to, uh, to Haman. Hey, the reason that Mordecai won't bow down is because he's Jewish. And then in verse 5, it says, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And this bitterness and rage uh, led him to convince the king to enact this law to wipe out the Jewish people. The truth is there's a little bit of Haman inside of all of us. We can all grow bitter, can we not? We can all grow hostile. We can all go to those deep, dark places where, where we want to get revenge and we, we want to see people pay for whatever it is we believe that they've done. And... When this law is enacted, um, Mordecai sends a message to Esther. He can't just necessarily roll up to the palace, but he talks to a servant who sends a message to Esther. 
And uh, the conversation with Esther is interesting. Esther 3.11 begins and it says, All the royal officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. Unless the king extends the gold scepter allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king in the last 30 days. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. So Mordecai is saying, hey, listen, can you help us out? You know, you're the Jewish girl in the court and you're the queen. What can you do to help? And Esther replies, I would love to help, but I can't just, I can't just go into the courtyard with the king. And this is not like a normal relationship, a normal marriage. You read Esther and you're like, well, why can't the queen talk to her husband? Well, it doesn't work that way. The king is in the courtyard. No one can come into his presence unless he invites you. And then if you come into his presence uninvited and he doesn't raise the golden scepter, then you die. And so uh, Esther's not saying no. She's just saying I'm thinking about this. This is a big deal. This is complicated. And uh, this is the situation. So in verse 16, she says, Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa. That's the capital city where all this is happening. And fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my female servants will also do the same. And after that, I will go to the king. And if it is against the law, if I perish, I perish so Mordecai went and did everything that Esther commanded him. Esther is the right person. Why? Because she realizes that when people are fasting, when people are praying, God begins to move. Her heart is yielded to the Lord. Do you see it? And so the, 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 the two people of virtue in this particular chapter is Mordecai, who's refusing to bow down to the king. And then it's Esther who says, I'm willing to put my life on the line to save my people, but I need some people to be praying and fasting for me. Get the people together. Get everybody in a fast. And a fast is an intensified time of spiritual focus where we deny food so we can focus on the things of the Spirit And when you really want to see God do something in your life, pray and fast. So this shows the yieldedness of the heart of Esther. Esther realizes we need God. When you need God, when you need a breakthrough in your life, prayer and fasting is your ticket. That's God's person. The person that says, listen, we got to call on the name of the Lord. If God doesn't intervene in this situation, this, is gonna, this isn't going to go. We cannot do this without God. So Esther's thinking. She's like, what do we need to do? Oh, we, need, we need fasting. Get everybody together. And everybody's fasting. And Esther's courageous. Uh, but her courage comes in and through, I think, the prayers of the people and, and the fasting that's going on here. And she says, I'm not going to feel the pressure of man. I want to feel propelled by God. And so she gets everybody focused on on the fast. You know, I'm convinced that fasting and prayer is a result of inner transformation, not confirmation. Okay, there's a difference. I love Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
it says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will. It is His good, pleasing, and, and perfect will. And so you got the will of God there at the end of verse 2, but you have this contrast between transformation and what the Bible calls conformation. Conformation to conform means that we are doing what we are told. You don't have to believe anything. It comes from the outside in. And that's what it means to be conformed. And if your Christian experience is through conformity, you're just going through the motions of religiosity, following the rules, but your heart has not really been touched by Jesus. Transformation, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. Transformation is doing the right thing because you want to, because change comes from the inside out. And see, a lot of people today are trying to live out a spiritual life by conforming, but not by being transformed. And to be transformed means to have your heart ignited by Jesus and to have God working in the inner parts of your of your being. I used to be a, a college pastor. I used to work on the college campuses before I became a lead pastor. And every year I would talk to lots of university students who worked at a big university. And we would have two kinds of students that would show up at church after school started every fall. We would have kids that grew up in church, had really nice Christian parents, you know, um, uh, wanted to go to church. And that was, that, that was, Something that they knew that they were supposed to do. But it was also kind of like maybe their faith was more their parents' faith, more than it was their faith. And those guys would come a couple times, then we wouldn't see them very much. But there was also another kind of student that grew up in a Christian experience. And they wanted to come get involved in every single thing that was going on at the church. What was the difference? Well, they were out on their own and they could make their own decisions and they were coming to that crossroads in their own faith. Am I doing Christian activities just because I've been told and I've been conditioned to do it? Or do I really want to hear from God? Do I really want to have an encounter? Do I really want to experience God in my heart? Have I been transformed or have I been conformed? And see, if you're a parent, the greatest thing that you can do is to introduce your kids to transformation. Because if your kids are transformed, they will want to be with Jesus. They will want to be involved in the ministry. They will want to grow spiritually. They will want to know God. But if we just teach kids to be conformed, do this, don't do that, talk this way, don't go there, then we'll never make disciples of our family. Esther is illustrating for us someone who has a deep dependence on God. She's the right person. She's the right person, and God is going to use her in a powerful way. She's the right person in the right place. Now, where is the right place? It's where God wants you to be. It's where God wants you to be. Now, for Esther, it's in the palace. And in chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing the entrance. And as soon as the, the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. Okay, 
Esther can't go directly to the king. But what she can do is look real good and stand in front of the courtyard. So Esther goes and she puts on her best pair of high heels, probably stilettos. She's got her hair done. She's got her makeup. I mean, she, she's, got the, she's got the saints fasting and praying. And she's ready. She's ready, man. And she's kind of walking back and forth, just hoping that the king sees her. And lo and behold, the king's like, whoa, you know? Um, it says there in verse 2, as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor. That, that's code in the Bible for she was looking really good, okay? She gained favor. And what happened? The king extended the gold scepter in his hand towards Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even up to half the kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. So, she's making some progress. Now notice, she didn't run in to the presence of the king and say, this big, bad, meanie Haman has been scheming against my people. Let's kill him. She's calm. She's calm. She's like, king, let's have a banquet. The king's like, well, that wasn't exactly what I was expecting. I offered to give you up to half of the kingdom, but, and you want to have a dinner, but okay, let's have a banquet. Esther is in the right place. The question is, where is the right place? The right place is where God wants you to be. Now, sometimes God wants you to move. Sometimes God wants you to to go somewhere. Sometimes God wants you to step out of your comfort zone, to to take a step, to do something. And that's true. And one of my favorite passages about that is over in Acts chapter 8, where Philip uh, is, is told by an angel and the Holy Spirit to talk to an Ethiopian man about Jesus. And he does so. And, and he goes somewhere. And sometimes God will compel us to go somewhere. But I think more often than not, God has already placed us in the place that he wants us to be. And so the right place is not necessarily always going somewhere else. Sometimes the right place is where you already are. Esther has already been put in the palace. She's been the queen for five years. She's already where she's supposed to be. See, God God had been setting this up a long time. Esther had really enjoyed those first few years of being the queen. There was no no real pressure. There was no controversy. There was was no problem. And and now all of a sudden, that, that, that chapter of her experience in the palace has come to an end. There's a sinister plot going on, but she's in the right place. She's in the right place. So she could have run off, I suppose. I suppose she could have stuck her head in the sand and done nothing. But instead, she recognizes that God has put me in this place for a very specific reason. Maybe God has put you in your family for a reason. You're in the right place. God has put you in this church because God has put you in the right place. 
God has put you even in that forsaken cubicle at work, and that's the right place. Some of you have been praying, God, get me out of here as quick as possible. These people are crazy. But you're always going to be around crazy people. Nothing new about that. What if the storyline of God, what if God has placed you there because that was, that was part of the plan of God? That was part of the providence of God. We ought to look at our life from a providential perspective more oftentimes than not. Because most people are thinking about why they don't want to be where they are more than they are thinking about, why did God put me here? Oh, I'd, I, would, I would give anything to be somewhere else. Oh, I wish I could have that job. I wish I, wish I had that family. I wish I lived in that state. I wish I, wish I knew these people. No. God put you there for a purpose. And when we begin to understand the purposes of God, then it begins to bring purpose and significance and meaning to our, to our lives. See, uh, you're not just a nurse. You're supposed to be God's representative in the hospital. You're not just a teacher. You're God's ambassador in the classroom. You're not just a lawyer, you're God's representative to the Bar Association. You're not just a business person, you're showing the business community how to make deals and how to represent God in that context. Where has God placed you? You know, whenever God places you in a certain place, it is always to help others. See, last week we talked about God as my elevator, how God elevates people. But God doesn't elevate Esther just so she can be beautiful and sit on the throne. No, God elevates Esther for a purpose, and her purpose is to help others. When God lifts you up, there's always a reason. We need to be asking, God, why am I here? What what do you want me to do, Lord? I mean, what's my assignment? And God may not have you in the same place your entire life, But maybe God has put you where you are today for such a time as this. The right place. The right time. The right person. Am I following God's timing? See, when you get these things in order, this is how God works. The right person is God's person. The right place where God wants me to be. The right time is when God releases me to do it. You see all of these dynamics working here in the story of Esther. Why doesn't Esther just just fix the problem? Well, it's not her decision, first of all. But she has to wait for God to open the door. Um, Mordecai says to her, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying this was in the providence of God. Maybe you didn't win the beauty contest in chapter 2 just because you were beautiful. Maybe you won the beauty contest and became the queen because God had another reason. God had another purpose. God had a plan. This was all a part of the plan of God. 
Esther's like, let me think about that. Your whole life, God has been building your resume. You know, when you look at a resume, you put down your skill sets and your experience and, you know, what you've done. And, and I remember when I was like in my 20s applying for my first job and I had my resume and it was about that long, you know. I was like, should I use a bigger font, you know? Really good. And I was asking one of my friends, I was like, can I put down where I went to middle school? They're like, no, that doesn't count. You don't have anything to put down. When you get a little older, though, you, you, have, you have more credentials. You have more experiences. You, you have more training. You, you have more whatever. God has been building your resume. You didn't even realize it. Some of the things you're going through today, you're, 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 you're like, God, get me out of here. But God had a purpose. God had a plan. Sometimes your misery will become your ministry. Do you know that? Yeah. Sometimes like the pain and all of the hurt and the the things that you've been through, that becomes your ministry. Your misery will become your ministry if you'll let God do it in your life. If you won't get bitter. And... And it starts with this fasting and prayer. I can't get off of this thing. When you need something to happen, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. The right time. Okay? When you, when you feel like that it's time to push the gas pedal, prayer and fasting. You can't speed up the hand of God. But I have found in my own experience, prayer and fasting reveals the purposes and the plans of God. When I really need to know, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Okay, so there's three parts of finding the right timing. Number one, we got to hold up. Don't freak out under the pressure. When Esther gets the word that this law has been passed to exterminate the Jews, she doesn't cry, she doesn't run to the king, she doesn't assemble an army. She says, let's pray. Let's fast. How would our life be better if we started working on our problems with fasting? We usually pray and fast at the end. Like, we try to fix the problem ourselves, and then if it's really bad, like, we start prayer, you know? That's our last resort many times. What if we started there? Esther starts with the fast. She holds up. Listen, don't freak out under the pressure. Number two, she holds out. She waits for God to open the door. The king has to initiate some things. He has to say to Esther, Esther, I want to give you whatever you want up to half of the kingdom. She can't make the king do that. You know, I love one of the Proverbs that says the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. You can't make your boss do certain things. You can't, you can't change the identity of your coworkers. But what you can do is you can fast and you can pray and you can ask God to open doors that you cannot so hold out, wait for God. So this, this whole process, it's interesting. The first couple of chapters, five years period of time. And then like the next five chapters, chapters three, four, five, six, seven, all happen within like 48 hours. When God starts to move, nobody can stop it. God has a wind up. You guys ever watch baseball? A pitcher has a wind up. I don't know much about baseball, but the pitcher has to wind up. It takes a while. You don't just throw the ball. you got to wind up. 
God has a wind-up. Sometimes the wind-up takes a while. Don't get impatient. Let God work. Hold out. God's going to do what he's going to do. And the king initiates. And the very next day, the king sees the queen. And he says, I'll give you whatever you want up to half of the kingdom. And she's calm. And she asks to have a nice banquet with the king and Haman. Now, it's funny because after the first banquet, Haman is thinking, the queen loves me. He thinks he's getting brownie points with the king. He actually goes back and brags to his wife about how special he is. Little did he know. And so Esther's there at the first banquet. And when you're reading the story, you're like, oh, this is, this is the moment of truth. And then the story takes a curve. At the, at the banquet, the, the, the king says, well, Esther, what do you want up to half the kingdom? She's like, you know what? I want a second banquet tomorrow night. The king's like, that's kind of odd. All right, let's have a banquet. Let's have a second banquet. We'll get Haman. We'll get the king. We'll get some, some of the finest foods. And let's eat. I think that, I think that Esther was not just nervous. I think that Esther was waiting for God to open the door. There's a rhythm. There's a rhythm to following the purposes of God. Sometimes we have to run. Sometimes we jog. Sometimes we walk. Sometimes God parts the Red Sea. Sometimes we're waiting for God to part the Red Sea. And, And she's just like, you know, I just don't think that the timing is quite right. Let's just, let's just pause for just a moment and let's come back and have a second banquet. Well, it's interesting because the next day, actually that night, the king cannot sleep. So he goes to the first banquet. The king can't sleep. Why can he not sleep? Well, the saints are fasting. Okay. Do you see it? And in verse one of chapter six, it says that night. Sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh. And Bigthana was kind of a heavy guy, and his nickname was Biggie. But they call him Bigthana. And Teresh, and two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, and when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus, the king inquired, what honor or special recognition have we given to Mordecai for the act? Well, if you go back to chapter 2, Mordecai, the right man, he hears about a plot to kill the king and he sends word through, through Esther and the king's life is saved. They wrote it down in the journal. The king forgot about it. He never recognized Mordecai, but one night he can't sleep. This is the providence of God. Okay, the providence of God, I can't sleep. When you can't sleep, you want to read something boring, right? So he brings in the servants. He's like, read me something that will put me to sleep. But they're they're reading and recounting the acts of Mordecai. And the king's like, you know, I kind of feel bad about that. This guy saved my life and we we didn't even say thank you. Okay, so is God starting to open the door a little bit here? Do you see the activity of God? Okay, we got to be patient. 
Listen, being patient is not being a cowardice. Being patient is not being spiritually immature. Being patient is being wise. So the next day, the king says to Haman, the bad guy, hey, we need to reward Mordecai. I want you to put this really nice crown on him. I want you to get him a royal garment, put him on the nicest horse and parade him through town. And let's let's show appreciation for what he's done. Now, don't you know that 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 Haman's about to lose his mind? He's trying to kill this guy. And now he's got to honor him. <laughs> okay. Ooh, I see God starting to do something. Woo. It's starting to happen. Everybody say it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen. So in this 24-hour period of time, the Lord real, I mean, the king realizes that he hasn't shown appreciation. He gets ready for the second banquet. The Jews are all fasting. And then in uh Chapter 7, verse 1, the king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. And once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request and spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent indeed. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And there is one that, who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And Esther answered, the adversary, the enemy is the evil Haman, and he's sitting right there. <laughs> well, the king's upset. The king marches off. He's fired up. Haman's begging Esther for his life. You know, I think he's having a panic attack. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Yeah. When the king walks back into the room, Haman is under such distress, he falls over on Esther. And the king interprets that as Haman hitting on his wife, which makes him even more angry. And Haman has been building this gallows, the gallows, just, just earlier that day, 75 feet tall because he wants to hang Mordecai. The king is so upset, he wants to punish him. One of the servants pipes up, which I think kind of shows that nobody really liked Haman. One of the servants says, you know what? There just happens to be a 75-foot gallow over at Haman's house. Let's put him on it. The king's like, good idea. And the Jewish people are saved. Haman is punished. It takes a while. It takes a while. When you don't know what to do, prayer and fasting. Right person, God's person. Right time. When God says the door is open, right place. Most of the time where we already are. When you put that together, you have divine movement and you have the great works of God. Isn't that beautiful? You know, a few years ago, the church was meeting over at the school, and we were trying to buy this building, and the church that owned it 
was very dismissive of us. We were a startup church. We were kind of like the nobodies in town. Nobody, you know, who are they? They don't have any money. You know, they're meeting in a school, all that. And that's, that's probably pretty true, actually. Um, <laughs> and, and Gina and I, we started coming over here and praying in this parking lot. God, give us this building. And every time that we started working on it, we were kind of shut down. We put together an offer. You know, we gave it to them. We met with the church. We talked to them. There were two other congregations that had this facility under contract. And we kind of thought, well, maybe that's not where we need to be, you know. Um, One day, our associate pastor went to the dentist to get his teeth cleaned. And he came back, and he was all excited. He came into my office, and he said, Pastor... The dental hygienist said that the building is back on the market. And I was like, the who? The dental hygienist. Does God use dental hygienists? I guess he does. I don't know. And I said, I said, we just talked to him a couple of months ago, and they said they had a you know, a church that was going to buy it and they weren't interested and all that. He said, no, that deal fell through. The dental hygienist said so. She goes to the church. I'm like, man, I don't even know what to think about that. So I called our representative. I said, hey, will you check on this? He said, Ryan, we just talked to them. They told us they, that, that it was under contract and they couldn't do it. You know, there was nothing there. And he was, I was like, well, why don't you just call them just so we can check the box, you know? He called me back in 15 minutes and he said, you know what, it's back on the market. And after a couple of years of working and trying and all that, we were able to work out a deal. But here's what I want you to know. In the meantime, the church was growing at the school. We were raising more money. The church was expanding. The church was getting ready. It was just the providence of God. It was a timing issue. It wasn't that it wasn't the plan of God. It's just that it wasn't the plan of God yet. And I wonder how many times we get frustrated in our our own journey because maybe doors aren't opening or opportunities are not, you know, falling out of the heavens or, or we feel like we should be in a different place in our life. But I just want you to know today you can never go wrong if you're the right person at the right place. Say it with me. At the right time. At the right time. Amen? Amen? Come on, let's give God some praise this morning, today, for his providence. Amen.